Hey, good morning. Uh, just so you know, we're overflowing into overflow again uh, today, which we've been doing that for several weeks uh, now. So here's my encouragement to you. Uh, first service and then this service are both experiencing this uh, same thing, but we've actually got several hundred seats at the 11.55 hour and also then at 5 o'clock tonight. So if, if you're getting a little tired of uh, pushing through the crowds, of being way, way, way out in the parking lot of trying to get through narrow halls and get kids in, uh, there is option. Uh, I would encourage you head over to 11.55, head to 5 o'clock. You're going to find a lot more room and a lot more uh, peaceful experience as you uh, try to get in uh, to church. Second thing real quick, uh, last week, and a bunch of us were gone on vacation, uh, we had a conversation together that said, hey, what would it look like for us to create a Christ-centered home, and what are some of the behaviors that would be part of establishing that? And so at the end of the service, we kind of covenanted it together and said, look, uh, here's five behaviors that we're going to do for the next 30 days. For the next 30 days, we're going to uh, have Christ-centered homes, and we're going to see what type of effect that has uh, with our families. If you were gone uh, and out of town, uh, I would just encourage you, this may be one of the messages that you want to go back and take a look at and join us uh, in this 30-day uh, promise that we're doing together. Uh, we've got a card in which you can write down the five behaviors that your family are going to do for those 30 days. So if you are interested and uh, you would maybe like uh, to have one of these cards, if you'll raise your hand, we'll pass them out to you real quick, and then you can potentially go home, uh, take a look at that message, and uh, catch up with the rest of us. Hey, we are going to talk uh, this morning uh, about uh, this idea. How come, how come you and I see families that it seems like generation after generation, they are just a mess? I mean, it just seems like they are incapable of making good, healthy decisions, that, th that there's always some sort of chaos, there's some sort of uh, dysfunction going on, there's some sort of sin uh, within the family that just seems to perpetually be there. And here's the interesting thing, is that if you look, you'd go, well, it, it's not even like it's, the, it's always the same sin or the same misbehavior or the same dysfunction. It's almost like, it, you know, it seems to change, but for some reason in this family, they, they just can't ever seem to get it right. And what you and I are going to discover today is that very often, although the behaviors may be different, the root that is causing the misbehavior, the dysfunction in the family, is the same. And a matter of fact, Scripture describes this as the sins of the Father. And what Scripture teaches is simply this, that it is possible for the sins of one generation to then be carried on to the next generation and then carried on to the next generation. That, that it's possible for there to be legacies of dysfunction and disobedience and sin within a family because of what Scripture describes as the sins of the Father. And we just want to dig into that a little bit today to find out, are, are you living in a family that maybe is struggling with this? Are you doing something within your family that would begin to perpetuate this uh, within your own uh, family? So we're going to take a look and uh, unpack this together a little bit today. If you've got your Bibles, go with me. Uh, to Exodus chapter 20. It's the first time uh, that this is mentioned uh, in Scripture. Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20. Matter of fact, those of you that are uh, familiar with your Bibles are going to be familiar that this is actually the Ten Commandments. And in the midst of the Ten Commandments, it has this conversation about generational sin and the sins of the fathers. It's Exodus chapter uh, 20, starting in verse 4. Uh, let me read this for you. Uh, here's what it says. 
Uh, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And of course, in this passage, he talks about this idea of making uh, false gods or idols, and he says, look, you just won't do that. And I, I'm just so thankful that you and I are so far removed that we're so much more deeply sophisticated than apparently these people. I mean, the idea that you would actually carve a god out of wood or stone or precious metal. I mean, at, at, at the very least, thankfully, we've gotten to a place where our gods have on-off switches or at least a key to operate them. But the interesting part about this passage is, is that he begins to describe this idea that says there is such a thing as generational sin. There is such a thing as the sins of the fathers, the sins of the mothers that are being passed down generationally through a family. Now, here's what you need to understand that it is not saying. It is not saying that you and I are accountable for the sins of our parents, that somehow you and I are going to get punished for what they did wrong. Okay? And a matter of fact, if you're a Bible person and you want a couple verses to be sure that's true, uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, verse 16, Exodus chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, real clear passage says, look, I'm not going to punish the children for what the, the parents, I'm not going to hold them accountable for that, uh, for what they did. I mean, that, think about it, that'd be a little bit crazy. That'd be like a family driving along in their car and uh, the two kids are sitting in the back seat, and one of the kids disrespects their mom, and dad turns around and says, Tommy, what are you doing? You will never talk to your mother that way. That is absolutely inappropriate. Matter of fact, Tommy, turn and whoop the tar out of your brother. He needs to learn a lesson. There's, there's just no way God's going to do that uh, within our lives. So the question then comes, what is it that God is trying to warn us about here? What is the caution that God is trying to express in our lives about generational sin, the sins of our fathers and our mothers, okay? So let's go back to the passage and take a look at it again. Here's what it says, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything, big screen TV, <clears throat> uh, in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters uh, below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, here's what you need to get. It's in the context of God saying, look, you will not have false gods in your life, okay? And then He says, and this is what happens to people who hate me. But the key to understanding the passage is understanding that phrase, hate me. God is… that word hate is not a word used to describe despising God. It doesn't mean you're angry at God. Here's what it means. You neglected to give God the place of first love. And God says, look, if you don't give me the place of firstness in your life, then you have hated me. You have despised me. So anything, anything in your life that you place in that place of first love, the place where God only is supposed to reside, then giving God second place, God says, is as good as hating me. Which means, if you put your boyfriend in first place 
and you say, look, here's the, I know, I know I shouldn't be dating him. I know he's not a Christ follower. I, I know, I know that if I really looked at scripture and if I listened to God, I wouldn't be in this relationship. But here's the thing, I love him. So I'm going to date him anyways. Then you have placed him in first place, in first love of your life, and you have hated God because you gave him second place. It's a habit in your life. It's where you go, look, here's the deal. I, I, I know, I know I've got a foul mouth, and I know I cuss like a sailor, but this is, that's the way I was raised. I mean, that's just, that's just the way our family has always been, and here's the deal. I, I just don't have the energy or the wherewithal. I'm not going to ever bring that under surrender to God, and I'm never going to get the, I'm just, I'm just not. That's just who I am. And God would say, here's the deal. If you know that's disobedience to me, if you know that that doesn't bring me on, then you love your cursing more than you love me because you're not willing to deal with it even though I've asked you to. It's a false god. It's pornography. And it's the guy who says, look, I mean, that's just what guys do, right? I mean, that's, that's what guys do. And I know, I know, I, I, know that, I know that it doesn't honor Jesus. I know Scripture would tell me over and over again not to… But, and it's a false god. It's the approval of men, and, and if you go, look, here's the deal, I just, I just have to have that group of people say I'm okay, I just have to get acceptance at work, or I've got to get acceptance in my school, or I've got to have my neighbors think I'm the perfect mom, or what, whatever that is, you'd say, look, I am more worried about what they think about me than I am worried about what God thinks about me, then God would say, you've got a false God, and you've, you've allowed that acceptance to be in the first place of love in your life, and you need to know that in that moment, by moving me to second, you have hated me. And here's the warning, and here's what he says, that when you and I do that, when you and I live our lives with false gods, the potential impact that that has in our family to the lives of our children has the potential to create generational sin. That, that although we said to ourselves in the moment we did it, look, hey, this is just me, and this is my habit, this is, this is my pornography, this is my alcohol, whatever that thing is, that, that although you said, look, this is my thing, God says, no, 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 what you're not understanding is this has the capacity to create generational sin within your family. Matter of fact, as he writes this passage, he's not writing this passage to you and me to get all worried and freaked out about what our parents did. He's writing this passage to you and me as parents to say, do you realize that if you allow false gods into your life, you have the capacity to create such devastating harm within your home that literally generations to come may live with the ramifications of your secret sin? your favorite sin. Matter of fact, let, let, me see, let me see if I can help with this. All right, so I need, I need a male in the room who is somewhere in uh, early 70s, late 60s, somewhere in that range. I need a guy that'll come help me out. Anybody somewhere in that range, and you'll admit it. Come on. <laughs> late 60s, early 70s. Come on, there's at least one in the room. We haven't run all of you out of here yet, right? Come on, someone? Yes, no? Someone willing to pretend they're that old. All right. Well, no, there's no way you're going to pretend. All right, come on. There we go. All right. All right, so give me, give me somebody. Thank you. You saved us. Okay, 
I need a male who is somewhere in his late 40s to early 50s, somewhere in that range, who will help me out. Where, 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 where? Do we got it? Okay, here we go. Huh? Okay, we're close enough. All right, I need, I need a female uh, in her late 20s, early 30s, and willing to admit it. Okay, come on. Here we go. All right, and I need, I need another female who is somewhere between 10 and about 14. Here we go. All right, here we go. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. All right, so you're, you're going to be right there. How you doing? Good. All right, so you're going to come right over on this side. Okay, this is so cool. Give him, he's, he's kind of insecure and he wants, yeah, there you go. Okay, so here we go. Okay. And you're going to stand right there. Did, did you want to come up here? Did they make you do it? I wanted to. Oh, okay, that's very cool. All right, so here we go. All right, so here's how this, here's how this works, okay? And this, this, what I'm about to say has nothing to do with any of these people that are on stage. This totally made up story. All right. So we start here. And his decision is simply this. The measure of a man is how many women you can bed down. Uh, how many notches you can make in your belt somehow moves your masculinity quotient further. So he lives that, that lifestyle. He lives that lifestyle of absolutely uh, being unfaithful to his family, being unfaithful to his wife. That's, that's the generational sin. That's the thing that he holds to himself and is going to continue to do. His son, watching, <laughs> watching the behavior of his father, says, well, I guess that's it. I guess, I guess that is uh, the measure of a man. I guess, I guess that's uh, how you establish uh, your masculinity. So he goes out, and even though he's married, has numerous uh, affairs and consequently numerous uh, marriages and divorces because they're perpetually uh, falling apart. And yet in the midst of all of that, in the midst of… He, he can't turn this around because he's going, look… This is, this is how you measure a man. This is what you do in your life. His daughter, watching her father, says, so the only way to get the affection of a man is to make yourself available to a man. She's learned that from her father's behavior. And apparently, the only way that you can get a man to love you is make yourself physically available for him. And consequently, uh, she ends up in all sorts of relationships with all sorts of guys just praying that one, uh, one out of the bunch will actually love her and will actually stick with her. And she ends up in marriage after marriage because she's constantly attaching herself to the wrong men who want her for all the wrong reasons her daughter, watching her mom, then says, I will never let that happen in my life. I, <laughs> very good, okay, I, <clears throat> I am never going to need a man that much. So here's the deal. I will never give my heart to a man. I, I will never be that dependent on a man. And now she's married. 
And no one can figure out why the marriage isn't working, why there's always something that she cannot bring to the relationship because she desperately within her heart says, I cannot possibly give myself that way to my husband. I cannot possibly let him in that close because I can't be that vocal. I can never need a man as much as my mother needed a man. And guys, watch what was happening. He may not even be living when she's born. And yet she is living with the effect of his sin in the life of the family. And generational sin has moved all the way down. And here's the deal. If she doesn't figure this out, she will pass this to her children. It's the power, ready? It's the power of the sins of the fathers. Okay, so thank you guys. Thank you for doing that. It was very cool. So here's what, here's what you and I have got to get, that, that when, when we have behavior like that, when we have people who have lived within generations of us that have, have lived in ways that were reckless and sinful, and when you and I don't acknowledge it for what it was and then find a way in which to release that out of our family culture, then the problem is you and I end up forever bound to our fathers. You and I end up forever connected to them because there is this emotional tie to whatever it is that we experienced in their presence, which, guys, and here's the crazy part, the way they behave so often has to do with what had happened in the sins of their fathers and mothers, and has now been passed down generationally through our families. So let me just ask you a question. Are you living with the sins of your father, the sins of your mother? Are there behaviors in your life that you know? I mean, if you just stop and think about it, you go, I get that that's not healthy. I mean, there's just nothing about it. I get, I get that there's ways that I treat people that probably, if you get right down, they're just sinful. And I do this. I have this anger. I have this bitterness. I have this fear in my life. And it's a direct result of the sins of my mothers and our fathers. And I'm just saying to you that, that, that if you and I find ourselves in that moment today, here's what you got to get. That if you and I don't figure out how to gain release from this, our children, our children will inherit from us the sins. Okay. Here's what you got to get. When, when a generation says, look, here's the deal. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to hold this one sin in reserve. I'm going to have this place of disobedience in my life. I, you know, I may decide I'm going to follow God in all other ways, but in this way, I'm just not going to do it. And what we fool ourselves into believing is, is that somehow it only affects us, and it's just not true. Matter of fact, Proverbs says this, it says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, which is actually a very exciting passage that says, look, if you establish a godly home, you need to know that the influences of a parent are so powerful. There probably is no other influence in a child's life that's going to mean it. And if you establish a godly home, there's a really good chance 
that your child is going to follow in those footsteps. But what you and I have got to get is, is that the converse is equally true. If you and I live in a home in which we say, look, uh, I'm just going to reserve this sin. I'm just going to have this place of dysfunction and or disobedience to Scripture. That that does not live in isolation to you. Matter of fact, it will push your children into a ditch. It's almost as if, you ready? It's almost as if you're playing linebacker in your child's life, and as they try to come, and as they try to move through life, your behavior, how you choose to live in disobedience to God, pushes them into the ditch. It pushes them into a place of absolute dysfunction and or disobedience to God. Because, because, you ready? It is impossible for you to have that behavior and them not to have to make a choice, and every child will make one of two choices about their parents' sin. You ready? One is they'll emulate it. One is that they'll say, look, apparently that's what you do. If you're a man, apparently you sleep with as many women as you can. Uh, apparently, you look at pornography. Apparently, that's what you do if you're a guy. Even if you claim to be a God-fearing guy, apparently, that's what you do. Apparently, what you do is you drink alcohol when life gets really tough. I mean, when life is tough, you drink till you can't feel it anymore. That's what my parents did. That's what my father did. That's what my mother did. And guess what your child is going to do when they're in a moment of absolute pressure in their lives? If you're a mom that has to have everything perfect and you've got to convince the whole world that your family doesn't make mistakes and so every time neighbors come over or friends come to your house, everything's got to be perfect and your kids have got to be perfect, then your kids may grow up and go, well, apparently that's what you do. Apparently when people come over, you pretend a lot. You, you put on plastic faces and, and, and you try uh, to give this misperception about your family. But apparently that's what you do. And one of the choices our kids have is to say, that's what mom and dad always did, so apparently that's what I'm supposed to do. And they emulate us in life. The other option is that they resent us. That they look and say, that sin within the life of my parents was so devastating, was so wounding to our family, and I am so angry about this, I will spend the rest of my life not being like my parent just doing exactly the opposite of them. Here's the problem. When you and I decide in our lives to be exactly the opposite of our parent, when we decide that we will never do anything like them, you realize what we just did. We just established them as the standard by which we measure our actions. In, in the midst of being angry and bitter and hating, we take every decision we make and we go, okay, so what would dad do if he was making this decision about a job transfer? What would dad do if his marriage was struggling like this? Because I'm going to do just the opposite of what dad did. But here's the problem. So often in doing just the opposite, we do behaviors that are so far to the other side that they in and of themselves are sinful and dysfunctional, but at least we're being the opposite. I've got a friend, and she talked about the, 
the story of her family. And her dad was a womanizer and cheated on her mom multiple, multiple times. <laughs> Finally left the family. And when he did, he just kind of moved on with life and everything was good on his side. The problem on her side was is that mom had always been a housewife. She'd, she'd never really learned skills so that she was marketable or could actually go out and get much of a job. And so here's dad prospering and here they are struggling. And as a little girl seeing that moment, she partly blamed her own mom saying, I, mom should have been better prepared. Mom should have been ready for this occasion. And here's what she swore as a little girl in her life. I will never need a man like my mom needed a man. So as she grew up, she was a high achiever. She was wonderfully capable. She thrived at everything she did until she got into relationships. And then she couldn't give her heart because she was never, never, never going to need a man the way her mom needed a man. And her marriage struggled. <laughs> and no one could figure out why this highly capable woman was having so much problem in her relationships. And it was because deep within her heart, she said, every single time she started to get close, every time she even began to give her heart to her husband, I cannot do this. I will never need a man like my mother needed a man. It was interesting. We, uh, we were talking about this in our staff as we were getting ready to do this series, and we got to this topic all through the room, people started to popcorn with their stories. People started saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I think that's happened, and I, I think my life reflects that. And so we thought we would just stop for a moment and have a couple people just share how this has played out uh, within their lives. So I want you to welcome with me uh, to the stage uh, Lori and Matt, uh, who have agreed to come. And, uh... Matt, you, uh, you've been coming to the church now, I think, for four years, something like that. Found Christ here at Cornerstone on the deal. Lori, you're actually on staff uh, here at the church. You're uh, head of our communications department right. uh, here at the church. And uh, both of you guys, I thought, had interesting stories about the sins of your parents and then how that affected and came through to you generationally on the deal. So, Matt, tell us, tell us a little bit about what happened in your home when you were young and uh, fill us in there. Okay. Um, when I was uh, one, my mother and father divorced, and uh, uh, mom remarried when I was about three to my stepfather, who basically raised me my, uh, most of my life. Um, but he raised me with an iron fist. He raised me into a place that I wasn't able to see my father, never saw my father until so I was So he actually forbade you from seeing your actual physical father. Yeah, my mom used to sneak me in presents at Christmas huh. to, that I could see, but I wasn't, I wasn't, allowed, to, wasn't allowed to have it. But um, at 11, I finally got to... But, my father, stepfather, raised me with an iron fist. I don't remember a time that he told me he loved me or that he showed love in any means. And uh, my mother and stepfather divorced when I was about 10 and a half, and I moved back home, which I'm from Tucson. And uh, I got to meet my father for the first time, and I can remember the day him coming, <laughs> coming to the front door, and he had a full mustache, and he uh, gave me a big old kiss on the lips. Hmm. And as a, a boy that's never seen love, that was... That was weird. Yeah. That was really weird. Yeah. I'm like, the guy's not supposed to do that, are you? So I think what was, in yeah. <laughs> I think what was interesting, uh, you then kind of get to your teenage years, 
and you're still trying to probe this thing of, hey, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to have the affection of a man because your stepfather had so withdrawn and so kept affection? Your real father had never been part of your life, and so you found yourself kind of getting in and following the crowd. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, through school, I was always, you know, I was a jock. I played every sport and uh, wanted to be the popular kid, and, and uh, alcohol was the place I went. I dove into it, and uh, I was good at it. You know, hmm. I, I did it. I mean, it, it had a hold of me. I, I can look back and truly say that I, I was an alcoholic. I mean, I was, I can count in a 10-year span three days that I didn't drink. Hmm. So it, it took a hold of me, but I was trying to fill a gap. I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, of course, but I was trying to fill a gap. But. Hmm. You know, I thought was uh, interesting is that uh, you told me that as you later became a husband and a father, mm-hmm. you found yourself raising your own children with an iron fist, which I thought was interesting given how your stepfather had raised you. Yeah, I had a lot of hatred towards my stepfather when I was younger, and, and I said I would never, never do it that way. I'd never treat my kids like that, or, and I was in the midst of it. I was. I was treating them yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, it, it was almost as if I don't want to do this. That's why I swore I would never do, but it's all I've ever seen, mm-hmm. and it's as if you were pushed into that rut of behavior. Mm-hmm. When does this begin to change for you? Uh, about six years ago, I, uh, God started working in my heart again. I mean, he's been there all the time, but he really started working, and I, I quit drinking at that time. And um, February of 08, I, I committed my life to Christ, hmm. and it's been so much different, so yeah. much different. I mean, God's working in a big way, so. Very cool. All right, so, Laura, your story's just a, a little bit different. Uh, you, as a young child, uh, experienced some trauma in your home. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, my dad was a very angry person. He drank. Uh, he womanized. Uh, he was even abusive to my, to my mom. Even though she kept the house spotless, she cooked, um, she made our clothes, she, you know, she really seemed to do everything so well. She tried to make our home very safe, overcompensating for, you know, the craziness that my, my dad would bring to our family. And you know, as, as a family, we just walked around the house on eggshells all the time, just hoping dad wouldn't blow up. And then when I was about nine, my parents uh, divorced. And I remember thinking, my goodness, if she does this so well and she tries so hard, what, what must I do to get him to love me and to not, not leave me? So I thought, well, I'm just going to have to ratchet this up to like trying to be perfect. Hmm. So I spent my life trying to excel in school, excel in sports, excel at, at everything just so I didn't give anybody any reason not to love me. So I think it's interesting. So here's, here's this angry father. You're, you witness your mother trying her very, very best to somehow make things okay for this man. He eventually leaves her, and your answer as a child is, okay, if she could be that good a woman to him and still not be good enough, then the standard apparently is perfection. And so you begin to live this life under the, the assumption that says, if somebody's going to love me, then I have to be perfect in order for them to love me. Now, you talked about this idea that, that when you eventually get married, this starts to play out in your marriage and with your children. Yes, I, you know, kind of hand in hand with somebody that's trying to be perfect, it goes so well with being critical. <laughs> and I started to Because you very want everybody critical. else to be perfect. Well, yes, I thought, why isn't he trying hard enough? He's just not, he's not doing this right. And, you know, so I would get frustrated and I would criticize how he how he did 
anything almost, not realize. I was trying to do it, of course, in love, but not realizing that almost every word out of my mouth was. So you, you actually talked to me about the idea that this actually began to sabotage your marriage in the sense that your husband got to the point where he said, I don't think I can do anything to please you right. or anything quite good enough in your life. Yeah, I remember thinking, no, that's not true. That's not honestly the way that I feel. It's just, I mean, I, I, I didn't see it really playing out real healthy when I was young and, and I remember not being able to even feel sadness or anger or disappointment in any healthy way because it always came out as anger. Hmm. And I remember even parenting my own children, how I was afraid to discipline or even spank them because I didn't know what might happen with my anger on the other side of that. Hmm. I think another part of your story that I found interesting was you talked about a time when you'd gone to visit your dad, uh, you were fairly young, and uh, he ended up going off to golf for a while, left you at home in the apartment that he was in uh, by yourself. Right. Tell us that story. Well, he had um, agreed for a, um, a golf engagement, so I was there at his apartment for a few hours and just to pass the time, start poking around. I ended up finding like this big stack of porn magazines and I mean, the pictures just seemed so vile. And I remember when he came home, it wasn't like it was my dad, the person I knew anymore. I was so angry, and I, I, I just couldn't believe that this is what he would do, and he seemed so nice to me. Hmm. You know? And I remember you saying to me, Lynn, it just seemed like the girls in those magazines were dirty girls. Yeah. And that it left this moment in your heart that said, hey, I don't ever want to be one of those dirty girls that as you ended up getting married, if there was ever a moment with your husband that made you feel like one of those girls, you all of a sudden found yourself kind of withdrawing from your husband. Yeah, I would just kind of pull away or just, you know, maybe even go through the motions, but just almost cringe. Hmm. And remember thinking, you know, gosh, you know, what, what might... I have been like, honestly, if maybe I hadn't had that experience. Yeah. When does this begin to turn for you? Uh, I became a Christian when I was 16, and I wish I could say it changed overnight, but as I matured um, with my relationship with Christ, I started to realize and look at my life that there are, there are places that just aren't godly or God-honoring, and through the course of just getting to know him much better, surrounding myself with godly people, just started to realize I could change it with Christ's help. Hmm. Hey, guys, thank you. Thank you for being transparent and honest and sharing your stories with us. Appreciate that so much. Thank you for doing that. Thank so here, here, here comes the question. Are you tied to the sins of your father, the sins of your mother? Are there, are there behaviors and things that you do in your life? Is there sin in your life that is a direct result of your response to them? And if that's true, how are you ever going to know freedom? How, how is this not going to generationally carry on from you to your kids to your grandkids? Where, where, where does this stop, and how would you and I ever find release from this? At, at what point do you and I just stop being the victims? Do we say, look, this is what happened, and this is how they behaved, and this is what they did, but I, this is the generation where it's going to stop. I, I'm not going to pass this on. 
Here's what you need to know. The first thing is to acknowledge it, to just say, look, I, I just got to say out loud, I am, I am behaving in ways, I am affected in ways, maybe because that's what dad always did or what mom always did and I'm doing the same thing, or maybe it's because I said I will never be like them and now they've become this constant reference of apposition in my life. What, whatever that is, just to say, look, it's there. I got to say what they did is affecting me. And then you ready for the second part? And then you got to forgive and then you've got to forgive. You've got to say, look, here's the deal. I'm not, I'm not saying that it didn't happen, and I'm not saying that it wasn't wrong. I'm not doing any of those things. I'm just simply saying that as long as I hold this in my heart, as long as I don't let this go, then it will never let go of me. And, and I will constantly be attached to the sins of my father. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose, even though it may not be what my heart wants to do, to release them so that I can be released. Years ago, I'm sitting in a car in front of my house with my youth pastor. And uh, he says to me, he says, Lynn, uh, you are so much like your dad. I said, no, I'm not. What are you saying? That's the, most, that's the meanest thing you could ever say to me. I hate that man. I have sworn in my life that I would never be like him. I, I, I take every question I ever have. I make every decision. I go, what would dad? And I do just the op. How could you ever say that? And Wayne looked me in the eyes and he said, that's the problem. You are so filled with bitterness and hate toward him that you can't make a decision that he is not a reference point in. And at the end of the day, he is molding your life. And he said, Lynn, the only way you'll ever be free of this is if you choose to forgive your dad. And I remember sitting in that car going, "This God, this is so hard because he's never acknowledged it. He's never admitted what he did. But I refuse. I refuse to spend the rest of my life attached to that. And I remember bowing my head as a young man and just saying, God, look, I just choose, I just choose to forgive my dad, which, which means, God, he doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't even owe me an apology. If he owes you something and if you still need to deal with him and if you need to spank him, God, that's up to you. He just doesn't owe me anything. And I remember raising my head and for the first time in my life experiencing freedom, It was gone. It was gone. Some of you in this room need to have that talk. Some of us in this room today need to just go, look, I, I, I'm just going to be honest and say, I'm, I'm living a life that is just full of sinful behavior that has everything to do with my response to the sins of my father, the sins of my mother. And if I'm not careful, if I don't find release and freedom, I'm, I'm going to carry this on to future generations. But what if today you and I said it stops here? What if you and I said this is the last generation in our family and we're going to release? We're going to release our parents, and in doing so, we're going to release ourselves. There are some of us in this room that 
your behavior has nothing to do with the sins of your father. You, you just come up with it on your own. It's your own horrible, sinful decision in your life. And you realize that's exactly what God was talking about, saying, be careful when you do this because you realize this has the potential to carry on for generations within your family. And some of us need to just turn around right now and say, I, I cannot do this. I, I will, I'm, I'm done with this. If not for the sake of God, for the sake of my children, I'm done with this. I will not pass on a generational curse to my kids. Let's bow our heads. I'm, I'm just going to ask you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you find yourself in a place that says, man, I, I have, I, I have been so attached, I have been so affected, and I don't like the answer, but I need to forgive. I need to release them so that I can be released. Then I'm just going to ask you to right now where you're at to take a moment and just pray and say, God, please, I choose to let them off the hook. I choose, I choose to call the account even. I choose to forgive. And if you need to do something, if you need to still spank them, then God, you do that, but they don't owe me. I choose to release them so that I can be released. I choose to forgive. If you're in this room right now and you know that you've got a false God in your life, you know that you've got a place of absolute disobedience to God and you've just said, hey, this is how I'm going to live and I, it doesn't matter, you get that Exodus 20 was written for you. Be careful, be careful, be careful because the sins of the parents are carried on to even the third and fourth generation. And I'm just going to encourage you today to rethink this and to come back and say, you know what, God, I can't. I cannot afford for this to be my family story. I cannot afford to bring this harm into my family. And I turn away from that sin in my life. I turn away from that behavior in my life, and I confess it right now. And I lay it at the feet of Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus, may we write the best chapter in our family story. May be, this be the generation of healing in our families. May, may the sins that have been passed down from generation to generation, the behaviors that have brought so much destruction to our homes, stop with us because we chose to forgive. We chose to turn our backs on the behavior and find freedom in Christ. May that be true today for us. In Jesus' name, amen.